Well, good morning. Good morning. You guys are ah, brave. Um, sorry, my notes are messed up here. Just a second. <laughs> Try this again. Okay. Hey, thanks for uh, just prioritizing the faith family and your own faith and uh, being willing to brave the cold. I know you, you, you know that you live in Colorado, and so you, you kind of deal with that, but uh, it's always good to see faces and gather with people. So uh, grateful to be here this morning. Uh, he was known in the internment camp outside of uh, Beijing by the children simply as Uncle Eric. <laughs> uh, this is the early 1940s. Uh, Eric had been born to Christian missionaries in China uh, from Scotland, and uh, during his schooling years, he went back to boarding school in Scotland, went to college in Scotland, uh, and there found that he loved sports, loved running, loved all those things, and had a passion for all that. And so uh, after uh, meeting his wife and returning to the mission field to continue the work that his parents had begun, they had three children, but as the 1930s were coming to a close, He could see on the horizon that uh, things were not looking well in the world. And so he decided to send his wife and three daughters ahead to safety in Canada. And shortly they're planning to join him. But shortly thereafter that, uh, Japanese rolled into eastern China and gathered up all the Westerners and put them in internment camps. And in the kind of cruelty of the Japanese in that time, they they would separate uh, the children from their families. So for up to six years, these children weren't with their families. So many children in the camp, uh, they were with Uncle Eric. And Uncle Eric was known as just this, uh, this guy who loved the kids. He loved encouraging them, lo- loved to get down on their level, always had a, a joke for them, and uh, loved to teach them uh, different sports and try to bring as much normalcy in, in the brutality of an internment camp as possible. And so uh, Uncle Eric showed them sporting games, and he would coach them, and he would uh, referee for them, and um, he would try to make it as normal normal as possible. And it was Eric's conviction by uh, personal conviction and religious tradition that he would do this six days a week. And then uh, on the Lord's day on Sunday, he, he would pull back to, to rest and to worship and to just kind of let it go. But, but he encouraged the children to continue to play their sports. He thought it was a uh, needed distraction uh, for them in the, the brutality of the camps there. But, but he noticed something troubling happening uh, on these days. He noticed that the children and their games would devolve into fighting and cursing and, and, and uh, tears. And Eric struggled with this. He struggled because uh, he, he, didn't, he had a decision to make, and he didn't know what he should do in this moment. Uh, back in college, he, he, he had become a, a runner. Uh, he learned that he was actually pretty good at running. Uh, he, even though he had a very unorthodox running style, he, he would run almost straight up and with his head to the sky and his smile on his face. Uh, but he was good. He, he was so good that he qualified for the 1924 Olympics in Paris 100 years ago. They're coming back this year uh, to Paris. But 100 years ago, he he qualified for uh, uh, his favorite event. And his best event was the 100-meter dash. (laughs) I don't know if you call it a dash now. But when I was in school, that's what we called it. Uh, A 100-meter race. Uh, But as as the summer of 1924 came along and uh, the organizers of the Olympics released the schedule for the different heats, he saw to... 
to his uh, consternation, oh, one of the qualifying ra- uh, uh, races was going to be on the Lord's Day. It's going to be on a Sunday. He had trained his whole life for this. And he had a decision to make. And, uh, you know, for, for, for him, in the end, it turned out to be a no-brainer. And I guess, I'm guessing if any of us were in that same situation, it would be a no-brainer as well. But for him, it was a no-brainer in a different direction. So I've set aside that time for rest and worship. I will not run for my own glory on that day. And so he pulled out of the race. Well, he had a, had a month or two uh, a heads up. And so he's like, well, looked at the schedule. He says, oh, the, the 400 meter uh, is, is, they don't have any races on Sundays there. And so I'll enter in that. And he actually wasn't very good at that, uh, but, but he did qualify. He was a couple seconds off the lead the whole time. And, and so he, he, he practiced and uh, kind of made it through the heats. In fact, he eventually made it to the finals there. And he says, as, as he went into the, the stadium there, an hour beforehand, the Scottish bagpipe players were playing outside and he could hear them. That kind of inspired him. But what really inspired him is one of the trainers just passed him a note before he went out onto the field. And it was just a quote from scripture. He who honors the Lord, the Lord also honors. And he took that as just encouragement. Ah. So he went out and got the draw and he's like, oh, got the outer lane. He's not going to know where he's at on the whole race because you, you start way ahead of everyone, right? And then it comes, comes even. And, and so he's like, oh, I'm just going to sprint. <laughs> 400 meters, I'm going to sprint. And so he just goes and tries to hold, hold out. And, and he goes and he wins the gold. Not only does he win the gold, he has an Olympic record. Not only an Olympic record, a world record at the time that would hold for 12 years. <laughs> um, and, and so where was I going with that? Um, <laughs> Yeah, that, I, I said some of these parts of this story out of order. Uh, so I, I wonder what you would have done, though, back in 1924, faced with similar kind of convictions and, and stuff, or, 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 or back in 1945 or 44 or whenever he had that, that another decision to make. What, what would you have done? I, I mention all that because... Um, by, by Christian tradition and, and different denominations otherwise, that, that they, while not replacing the, the Sabbath, that they think uh, church tradition has, has moved the day of rest and worship from uh, Saturday to Sunday. And so, uh, though it, there's not a one-to-one correspondence, it is this idea of taking some time to pull back to rest and to worship to be with God's people. We, in America tend to not think that much about it. Sometimes the only time we really think about that is when we're a little bit irritated on Sunday after church and we're looking for some Chick-fil-A. <laughs> like, oh, what? Why would they be closed? That doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Like, like, we're tempted to think that, you know, the Sabbath isn't that big a deal. Um, you know, that seems like a, a bygone era, era, something that People dealt with in the past. Um, didn't Jesus come to, to, to do away with that? And we can even come to our passage today uh, in Luke chapter 6. And, and the Sabbath is going to come up six times. And, and we can misread the scripture and see Jesus' response to the Pharisees who are obsessed with the Sabbath. And think, see, it's not that big a deal. Jesus says it's not a big a deal. But we can think that Jesus kind of lowers the bar. But that would be the wrong interpretation of this passage. In fact, Jesus is not going to lower the bar on the Sabbath. He's going to raise the bar on the Sabbath. 
It wasn't that the Pharisees were too into the Sabbath. They weren't into the Sabbath enough. They missed the whole point of the Sabbath. And so uh, it's important for us as we're in this part of, of the book of Luke to understand what's going on. It's early on in the life and ministry of Jesus, but already uh, that there's starting to be some conflict, particularly with a group of people named the Pharisees. We see this back in chapter, beginning of chapter 5. Uh, some friends bring a paralyzed man, and, and Jesus first says, your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees are livid. They're like, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, I, I agree. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> uh, and then he goes on, and, uh, you know, we saw last week, Jesus comes and, and brings this radical grace to Levi, the tax collector, that totally reorients Levi's life to the king and the kingdom, and it disorients the Pharisees. This doesn't make sense. And then he gives a couple parables. So he's like, let me, un- let me help you understand how, wh- what's going on here. And he talks about new wine and new wineskins and patches and new clothes. And, and he's, he's trying to show them what I'm bringing is radically new. The new covenant is not like the old covenant. It's not just a little bit more uh, a law. It's radically new. It's, it's the gospel of grace. And, and then the Pharisees are offended by that. But what Jesus is going to say and do on the Sabbath is going to be the linchpin for his death. From here on out, the shadow of the cross is going to loom larger and larger each day as Jesus moves towards that. And it's because of what Jesus says and does about the Sabbath. So before we jump into that, you, should, you need to understand some things about like these Pharisees. We, we see the Pharisees, but what's going on here? Well, between Malachi, the close of the Old Testament, 400 years pass, and, and we have the New Testament. But during that 400 years, a lot is taking place. Like the world moves on. In the fourth century, the, the Greek and Greek culture and Greek military kind of rise up under Alexander the Great. And, and Greek culture and philosophy and um, music and arts and morality and theology just begins to spread around the whole ancient Near East. And it begins to take root. And, and in fact, some Jewish people at the time that kind of were uh, open to that, more, you, you might think of them as progressives, they kind of embrace it. They're known as the Hellenists. Uh, they, they kind of are like, yeah, we, we want some Greek philosophy culture. And, and they embrace some of the Greek, um, um, not, not necessarily their idolatry, but kind of, they embrace some of the Greek morality and otherwise. These are the Hellenists. And at the highest level, the Hellenists, these progressives, uh, are the Sadducees. They're very savvy politically and, and culturally, and uh, they, they kind of fit in in the whole Greek world. By the first century, uh, while Greek military power has, has gone away and the Romans have, have, have taken over that role, it's still Greek culture and Greek language and Greek philosophy and Greek morality that has taken root in the whole ancient Near East. Well, during this 400 years, there have been other Jewish renewal movements trying to restore. You could think of these as the, the conservatives, like, like we, we don't need to embrace the, the new thinking, the new morality and all that. We need to restore what, what God has given us. And so uh, over, the to- over that time, uh, it raises up this group of people known as the Pharisees. Pharisees are highly educated. They give their life to the studying of God's law, namely Torah. And they've, they've created a, an amazing uh, body of work to help God's people rightly interpret and, in their view, rightly apply uh, and guard the law of God. It's known as the Mishnah. 
And so they, they would try to anticipate every eventuality in Jewish life uh, and, and circumstance and say, this is what it looks like to honor God. This is how we interpret it. And so uh, you, what we need to understand, and what sometimes we don't because we read the Gospels and only see the Pharisees negatively, these are the most respected, highest educated people in the land. And, and they, they are doing their best to just have God's people preserve what God has given them. And, and where they get really focused on is the Sabbath. Well, why the Sabbath? Well, well, they understood a few things about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is instituted all the way back in creation. God creates the universe in six days. On the seventh day, we read, he rested. He didn't rest because he needed to rest. He is God. He's limitless in all things and power. But he rested as a, as a model for creation. That there would be one day a week where we pull back from work. We'd rest and worship for rest and renewal and restoration. It was an incredible gift, and they saw it as such. You fast forward in Israel's history, after 400 years in slavery, uh, God delivers his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, gives them the law, gives them the Ten Commandments through Moses. The fourth commandment, the longest commandment of the Ten Commandments, is this commandment to observe the Sabbath, to pull back and rest. Now, think about this. To a people who for generation after generation after generation have only known slavery and never a day off, God says, part of my law is you take a day off each week. It's an amazing gift. It should be an amazing gift. All religions have vener- venerated and holy places and uh, rituals, but the Jewish people had holy time. Holy time each week, sacred time. It was Sabbath, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And so the Pharisees come along and and they come in the Mishnah, 39 different rules uh, uh, to keep the Sabbath. So there were the clear cut rules in in the Old Testament, like no harvesting on the Sabbath, uh, no this kind of work, no kind of travel. And then they they get very specific of what their rules are because they're trying to help the people obey the law. So. One scholar put it this way, or one Jewish scholar said this, more than the Jewish people have kept Shabbat, Sabbath, Shabbat has kept the Jewish people. It's this culturally distinctive thing for the Jewish people, Shabbat, Shabbat, Shabbat. And I think the Pharisees would agree with it. I think maybe even Jesus would agree with that statement. More than the Jewish people have kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept the Jewish people. So I want you to imagine yourself now in the first century, As a Jew that wants to honor God, has a ton of respect for the Pharisees, and now it's on Sabbath. So let's turn our attention to uh, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Listen carefully. This is God's word. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. So, so, so what's going on here? Well, we know that uh, in the Old Testament law, there's actually uh, uh, laws called the gleaning laws. Uh, it was God encouraging his people that when you harvest your field, be a little bit sloppy. Leave some on the edges. This would, this would be a, a provision for food for travelers and for the poor people in our community to always have a source of food. Don't, don't just take all of it for yourself. 
And so the, the edges of the field would not be harvested. And so uh, the, Jesus and, and the disciples, they're, they're probably on their way to synagogue on, on Sabbath. Now, they couldn't travel more than uh, basically one kilometer, half a mile. So, so they're not far, and they're just going, and as they're going, maybe their hands are, are running through the heads of the grain. It's harvest time, and, and some of the disciples just kind of maybe absentmindedly grab some and, and, and start to rub them in the hand, blow away the chaff, and, and thank sunflower seeds, just start popping those in. Well, the Pharisees, who are already kind of have an eye on Jesus and don't like what he said about the radical nature of the grace of the kingdom of God, are watching. And when they see this, in their mind, they're thinking Mishnah. They're thinking 39 laws. No harvesting on the Sabbath. Now, not, by our definition, no us would say they're harvesting their field, but not according to the Pharisees. Oh, you're just micro-harvesting at that point. <laughs> you're doing some work. And in fact, that's what they accused, accused them of. Verse 2, some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, here's... Here's what you need to also understand. The Old Testament also ups the ante. It doesn't just mention it in creation and in the Ten Commandments. Throughout the Old Testament, repeatedly, if anyone breaks the Sabbath, it is punishable by death. That's pretty extreme. So I imagine some of the disciples in this moment are like, oh, oh no, the, the most respected authorities in our culture who set the direction of our culture are now accusing us of breaking the Sabbath and I wonder if some of them are a little bit nervous. Does, that could be our lives, Jesus. What, what is Jesus going to say? How is he going to respond? How would you respond? I, don't, I know what I would do. I'd be like, I'd argue the, the finer points. I'd be like, well, no, that's not what you're talking about. Let's look at the scripture. Let's see what it says. No, th- that's just your interpretation. Chill out. That's what I would have told the Pharisees. But that's not what Jesus does at all. Jesus is actually going to do something that, that helps, helps us understand not just the Sabbath, but all of the law of God. Jesus isn't going to lower the bar on the Sabbath. He's going to raise it to a point that was unimaginable for the Pharisees. Look what he says. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. I've got to be honest, when, usually when I'm reading through the Bible in a year or whatever, I'm reading through a gospel, I read that. I'm like, well, that's weird. I don't know. Move on. I don't know, I don't know what that means. Like, that's a weird story to tell all of a sudden, Jesus. Like, what's the connection to the Sabbath there? Is it... First Samuel 21, like, go back there. Is it, did this happen on the Sabbath? Is there some, is it a connection to the time? Is that why Jesus is, no? We're not told what day of the week David does this. Well, well maybe it's the what. Maybe, maybe Jesus is saying, hey, there's precedence, you know. Uh, David and his people went in and kind of broke the law a little bit. And so uh, we can kind of mess with it here. It's okay. Don't worry about it. No, that's not, that's not what's going on here. It's not the precedence of that. It's not the when, and it's not the what, it's the who. You have to understand that the the Jewish mindset at this time, since the time of David, he becomes this figure, not just to look back on, but this precursor, this foreshadowing of a king in the line of David. The Messiah would come with all authority. 
And he's saying, hey, let me tell you a time when the anointed King David goes into a place where, where there's this showbread, they call it the bread of the presence that was meant only for the priest to eat. He goes in the place with a higher authority as anointed king, and he claims the bread, that which was meant for the Pharisees. And he's saying, is it possible that, that, that the higher king, the Messiah in the line of David, comes and has authority over all of it? In fact, that is what he's saying. That's his very next line. And it's his very next line that will seal, seal his fate. It's his very next line that will lead him to the cross. He claims two, two messianic titles in, in response to this. The first one he's already claimed, and the, the Pharisees did not like it then, and they're not going to like it now. He says, then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man. This is a, a, a title from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, that talks about this Son of Man that is actually God, the Messiah and God, truly God and truly man. The Son of Man, who he's already claimed for himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And again, we read that and we're like, well, that's weird. No, this this would have set the Pharisees off. I have authority. He's claiming ultimate authority as God and over all of the law and over the Sabbath that they were so precious to them. See, the Pharisees thought that they thought a lot about the Sabbath. They thought that they took the Sabbath very seriously. They looked back and they saw uh, the Sabbath in the the Bible. They saw it in creation and in the law. And then they they thought, we're going to be as serious as possible about this. And Jesus says, you're not serious enough. You should have not just been looking back at what the Sabbath was and, and did. You should have been looking forward to what the Sabbath really pointed to. The Sabbath pointed to a day when ultimate rest and restoration and renewal would come for creation. You're only looking back and you're legalistically applying these laws to try to obey the Sabbath. But legalism in the end, though it looks serious and it looks like you're really uh, fervent in your devotion to God, is actually cheap and easy. We can make rules all day long. But if you would have looked forward, and maybe you would have had eyes to see what I'm saying, the Sabbath is completely and wholly fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the Sabbath. I am your rest. I am your renewal. If you could have seen this, you wouldn't be angry. You'd be ecstatic with joy. It's finally here. The shadow of the Sabbath pointed to the substance that is Jesus. He is our Sabbath. If they would have taken the Sabbath seriously, they would have seen him as such. They would understand what Jesus says when he says, like in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I'll be your Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, here's what I believe. I believe no matter where you're at on the spiritual spectrum, whether you're a Christian or not, you hear Jesus' words in that, and there's something in you that says, yes, heavy laden and burdened, I want rest. And Jesus says, I'm the rest. I'm what the Sabbath law pointed to. You want to obey Sabbath? You see and savor me. You enter into me. You find your rest in me so that you don't just have rest one day of week as beneficial 
physically or maybe even mentally that is. In Jesus, we have rest always. We can rest in Jesus even when we're working. And if you don't understand Jesus' Sabbath, you can be working even when you're resting. So the movie Chariots of Fire, which is the story of Eric, Uncle Eric, Eric Liddell, in the movie, um, there's another character, Harold Abrams, a Jewish guy. And there's this kind of this contrast. And, and listen to what he says. He, he, he's a picture of, of having to work even when he's resting. Here's what he says. And I think we can relate to this. One point in the movie, he says, and now, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. My performance, what I do, whether I succeed or fail, is going to justify my whole existence. Man, isn't that a a story of modern man? Let's find our identity and our success and what we can do and, and show the world and, and prove to God and to ourselves and everyone else I, I'm worthy. I, I, have, I have to justify my whole existence so that Harold, even in his resting, he's working. And even in the, in the story, because Eric has to pull out, so Harold goes on and wins the gold in the 100, 100 meter. Even when he wins the gold, he's not satisfied. He's still working. Now compare that with, with Eric who understood that Jesus is our Sabbath, that you can rest even when you work. Here's what he says to his sister in the movie. Now, he probably didn't say this in real life, but I think he would agree with it. It kind of captures his his kind of view on, on God and the law and Sabbath. He says this to his sister, Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. See the difference there? They both look like they're doing the same thing. They're both running 100 meters. And one is running out of the rest he has in his relationship with Jesus. And the other is trying to prove his existence. What the Pharisees don't understand is that the the Sabbath had, and even the whole law, really, you can put this on the whole law. The whole law was, was meant for our flourishing and to be a blessing and not a burden. And they've twisted it into such. Of course, they don't understand what Jesus says by he is Lord of the Sabbath. That just makes them angry with rage, blinded to the actual truth. And so we see this in the next portion, verse 6. On another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, picture this scene again. This is not a big community, Capernaum. Everyone in the community probably knows the guy with the shriveled hand. They probably know him by name. And they don't, the Pharisees don't see him as a person with a name, as an image bearer. They see him as a, a cog in the machine to bring Jesus down. I can imagine that they went out that, that Sabbath morning and, and found him and said, you're coming to synagogue today. Oh, Okay. We're going in. But it's not because they wanted to bless this guy. They wanted to use this guy to trap Jesus. Jesus is in the middle of his sermon, but Jesus is truly man and truly God. Verse 8, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. Said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Imagine this is a tense moment. 
He sees this guy, maybe knows this guy by name. He calls him up. This guy who's kind of maybe living his life in shame. He's been taught by the Pharisees that if you have any kind of sickness or suffering or disease, it's probably something you did. Probably some nasty sin that is out there, or at least your parents. He probably has just kind of come along, keeping his shriveled right hand in the cloak of his, his robe there, and just kind of lives that way. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, I want you to come stand, middle of attention. I want all eyes on you. And I imagine this guy is like, ah, I don't, I don't like that, Jesus. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in his mind. Maybe he's thinking, I, I've heard that Jesus can heal. Maybe he's a little bit excited. Maybe he'll, he'll heal me. Maybe I can start providing for my family again. But mostly he's probably embarrassed. No one wants to show their deformity. He's kind of hiding it. And Jesus says, come, come right here. Reluctantly, I imagine he gets up and stands and the whole crowd is staring at him. Verse 9, then Jesus said to them, he asked the whole crowd, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Again, remember, Jesus knows what they're thinking. They're trying to trap him. Jesus says, I'm going to throw the trap back on you. Let me ask you, is the Sabbath for our good or for our bad? And they're all silent because they know they can't answer that. In Luke's gospel, it says he looked at, around at them all. Mark, in his gospel, in the same exact scene, uh, kind of expounds a little bit more what Jesus is thinking in this moment. Mark 3, 5, it says he looked around at them all in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He's getting furious inside. He's looking at them. So is it okay to do good? Or should we only do bad? Is the Sabbath for our good or not? And they're all just silent. He's getting angry. Why is Jesus getting so angry? Because he knows. This is meant to be a blessing and not a curse. You've turned it into a curse. And and the lie uh, that has worked its way into every human heart and in every human story, the lie that worked its way first into our first parent's heart is now just present in the room. The lie that has made it necessary for Jesus to come lay down his life is present in the room. Remember in the garden, God says, hey, you can eat of any tree in the whole garden except for just this one. You're blessed with all of creation and all the other trees, just this one. And God doesn't give a reason why. You remember that? He doesn't say, well, don't eat this one. It's high cholesterol. It'll make you fat. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say it'll give you a stomach ache. It doesn't taste that good. He doesn't say that. He doesn't give a reason why. Because God is setting up. He's saying, I'm going to have a particular kind of relationship with my people. And it's a relationship of trust. Don't eat of this one thing. Obey this one rule because... Do you trust me? Because I'm God. And you're my creation. And remember the lie that comes in. The serpent comes along. What does the serpent say? The serpent says to, to Eve what he says to you. Is God really for me in this? And she believes the serpent. We believe the serpent. We believe our own hearts. God gives us a law. He says this is for your good. It's for your flourishing. And we think, mm, I think I know better. We all do it. We all read God's word or the, the light of our conscience says, this isn't right. You're like, but it'll make me happy. We believe the lie. It's present in all of us. 
And it's present in the synagogue on that Sabbath. And Jesus is furious. He's furious. You've believed a lie. You've taken that which was meant to be a blessing to you. A Sabbath. And you've twisted it into an unbearable burden. A legalistic law. And so, what does Jesus do? He looked around at all of them and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Again, technically, Jesus hasn't done any work. All he said was some words. He's not working on the Sabbath. He just says, stretch out your hand. But again, they're so blinded by their rage against Jesus. They don't see that. They're the ones now that are furious. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Luke actually kind of softens this. In Matthew's gospel in this scene, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and conspired with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. Now think about this. The Herodians, the progressives who hate the conservatives... They get together. One thing we can agree on, Jesus must die. And so they, they begin to plot his death. Well, what is going on here? Since Jesus is our Sabbath red, what's the point in this passage? We actually learn very little about what we should or should not do on Sabbath. Except for maybe we can have some grains of, of, of uh, some grain and, and maybe we can uh, do good on the Sabbath. That's not the point of this, this passage. It's higher than that. Uh, if I had a sermon title for this, uh, and if you heard my sermon title before hearing this message, you might think something completely opposite of what I mean. And the sermon title is, let's get serious about the Sabbath. And you might think, oh, well, He's probably going to be like, well, we should really set aside a day and we should really do this. And maybe we should go back to the old. Maybe we should be Seventh-day Adventists and and start at sundown. It's like, no, no. I said, let's get serious about the Sabbath. To get serious about the Sabbath, according to Jesus, is to get serious about Jesus, who is our Sabbath. To look to him for our rest and renewal and restoration now, weekly, daily, moment by moment, we get to Sabbath our whole lives. We are now in Jesus, hidden in Christ, in him. We are in the Sabbath in this moment if you're in him by grace alone, through faith alone. So get serious about the Sabbath. Sure, you should take a day off. That's just part of the rhythm of creation. Sure, you should prioritize guarding your time and worship with other saints. We, we should do all that. That's all good, but that doesn't earn us anything. That doesn't fulfill anything. That, that, that is because we have Sabbath always, 24-7 in Jesus. And when we understand what Jesus has done to the Sabbath law, we understand he's done that to the whole law. The whole law no longer becomes this burden that crushes us. It doesn't become a have to, but a want to. I mean, isn't it good of God to say, I want you to rest. I want you to find restoration and renewal. Be my people in that. That is good of God. Well, let's go back to Eric in the internment camp. Because he understood that his rest, his Sabbath is in Jesus. And that on the Sabbath, it is not only permissible, but encouraged to do good. He gave up his personal conviction and his religious tradition of guarding his Sundays. And he went and coached 
and played with and refereed the kids' games again. He would get a brain tumor in the camp, and right before the end of the war, he would die in the infirmary of the camp. But for generations now, the kids that had Uncle Eric, they just fondly remember looking back on him. And I I just love that they can say, and here's a man who guarded his time and his rest and his worship, but he understood Jesus was the Sabbath. And when we needed him most, he gave himself to us. This is what we can do if we understand the Sabbath. So what we can do as God's people, understanding that we can do good, we can rest because we have Jesus. So let us learn what it means to find our rest in him every day. If possible, let's honor our limits and guard our time and embrace God's good gift of physical and spiritual rest together weekly. But let us also seek to do good, to bring life and rest and restoration wherever we have, because we have it from Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you are our Sabbath. In you, we find rest. Thank you for the invitation to everyone here this morning. Come to me, whoever is heavy laden and burdened, and you will give us rest. Lord, I pray that if if we've lost the narrative, as the Pharisees have lost the narrative, today by your spirit, we would just renew our spirits in you and rest in you as a people. Lord, I pray that you would show us even on our day of rest how we might lay aside our rights to that and serve and do good for your people because we have eternal rest in you. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you, Jesus, for the fact that you are Lord of the Sabbath. It's in your name we pray. Amen.